Welcome to the first episode of a series of podcasts on the Indian economy. My name is Vivek Narayan and with me is Dr. Amol Agarwal, Assistant Professor at the Amrit Modi School of Management at Ahmedabad University. Amol did his PhD from IIM Bangalore and he and I were lucky enough to go to school together at Mayo College, Ajmer in Rajasthan, India, which is where I know him from. Amol has been a prolific blogger since 2007 and he's been recognized as one of the top 100 bloggers on economics for several years now. He tweets at mostly economics and is a contributor to various online outlets such as Business Standard, Money Control and Live Mint. This episode is divided into two parts. The first part covers in brief the time period before nationalization of the banking system under Indira Gandhi. The second part goes into details of what happens to the banking system post nationalization. As you'll hear, there are some common threads that have ailed the Indian banking system for the last century or so, and this brief overview provides us context into some of the issues facing the Indian economy today, which we'll cover in later episodes. Let's begin. I welcome Amol to the show. agreeing to uh, chat with me uh, uh, just to let people know how this came about i was in india a couple of months ago and it was the first time that i felt that i was being overwhelmed by the amount of information that i was receiving uh, usually it doesn't happen that way this used to happen to me when i first visited the us uh, back in the early 2000s uh, there was so much information that you you were kind of like cut off from the rest of the world Mm. Uh, this was the okay. first time that i experienced it in india which was there was just so much going on it was very difficult to keep a track of you know the economy has been slowing down now for almost 18 months but the conversation around the economy is very i don't want to say it's polarized but it's this is something that i've always found is very difficult to find an accurate picture and that's when i kind of reached out to you and i said hey where do i get data from and you're like hey get it from the rbi and then as i was going through the data and i was like you know why don't i just talk to amol like he's the expert this is not my subject matter so i can ask you know i can ask the stupid questions and then you can sort of explain things to me so that was sort of my motivation uh, behind yeah this. but let me just interrupt here a bit uh, i think uh, the guys who are in medical industry uh, make uh, for fabulous economists and uh, especially bankers my my research on banking history tells me that a lot of uh, people who do banking uh, engage sort of a lot of lot of people who do medicine uh, some of these things uh, like banking managing finances and so on and so forth so uh, <laughs> uh, it's quite I quite mean, interesting so it's, it's that's a compliment funny. right no i mean look uh, uh, i went through the mba i was doing healthcare management and everything and i think i have a natural inclination towards economics and finance and those sorts of things but sure uh, one of one of one of my uh, i don't i don't know if you want to call it a drawback or not is but i like plain speaking like you know when people talk about the gdp i'm like well why are we really talking about the gdp because that the base is different you you can't really it doesn't really make sense you know it's about okay. growth economics and you, you sort of have these conversations where people are saying oh 4.5 and the other person says well 5.5 well it doesn't really mean anything right Okay. I can understand unemployment. I can understand 
sort of closer to like what, what I guess traditionally one would say microeconomics, but some of these like large sort of uh, ideas and macroeconomic sort of concepts, I think right. in general, people have trouble with. So that's sort of, sure. I, I wanted to pick your brain on that and sort of see where we could, uh, you know, go with it. Okay. I know that you had uh, organized a conference on the nationalization of banks, if I'm right. Mistaken. So, do you want to quickly just talk to us about that? How did that go, and what what is it that uh, was so interesting to you that you decided to do your PhD on that? Okay. Yeah. So, uh, basically, let me let me let me rewind a few years, uh, a decade actually, uh, when I used to be working in Mumbai's financial industry, and it and as as luck would have it, wherever I go, there's a crisis, and this was a global financial crisis, and I just started kind of work, and I. I just joined in markets and economy was doing very well. And then there was this Lehman crisis. And for a moment, I realized that a lot of scholars in the, in, in the United States, including Ben Bernanke and everybody else was talking a lot about Great Depression and the history and how that is very important to understand uh, where we are and what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And as I looked around, uh, there was very little on India, really. We somehow, despite being very, very historical in whatever way, uh, economic history and doesn't really feature in most of our conversations. It's beginning to change a bit. So when I, after working for a couple of years, when I went to do my PhD, I was very inclined to do something on banking and monetary history, and I was kind of happy to do it. And as I was doing my history, I realized that a lot of coursework, I mean, a lot of referencing comes from all these events, which, uh, you know, all these anniversaries, which come on uh, for the reflecting on the macro and the banking history. Mm -hmm. So typically, United States in 2000 at Federal Reserve 100 years of history. Right now we are two th- uh, in 2019. We have a couple of anniversaries going on with 30 years of inflation targeting in New Zealand and so on and so forth. And obviously, uh, when I was looking at Indian banking history, 1969 was a pivotal year in terms of Indira Gandhi nationalizing 14 major banks, mm-hmm. which uh, in several ways changed several things about the way we look at banking, economics, macroeconomics, and so on and so forth. I kind of had made up my mind that come what may, uh, when it comes to 50 years of banking history, uh, 50 years of bank nationalization, I should really do something about it. I was happy that uh, we could do something at Ahmedabad University, uh, reflecting on the 50 years. Uh, We could get a lot of speakers around and a lot of Mm -hmm. researchers to introspect and uh, understand. I mean, I think what is problematic in economic history and why perhaps economists don't look at it very favorably is the fact that they think that history is just, you know, looking at some past dates and so on and so forth. But for me, history is always about looking into future and looking into present, saying that, okay, why is it that we are doing certain things and why is it that, you know, we are where we are. Right. So, so providing uh, the context to what we're yes, seeing absolutely. right now. Yeah. yeah yes. Sense, yes. Completely. So, so the conference was kind of quite good in that sense. We got a lot of young researchers from, uh, from all around and uh, the current RBI governor Shakti Kanta Das inaugurated the conference, appreciated the theme. Wow. gave us uh, some bit of uh, bandwidth about the kind of questions and the kind of things which RBI is looking at currently, mm-hmm. followed by uh, discussions with, uh, followed by keynote lectures from the former RBI governors, uh, Shaktikant, uh, sorry, uh, C. Rangarajan, who pretty much sweeped uh, the floor, sweeped the, the whole history of banking and uh, so on and so forth, mm-hmm. given his wide experience. So overall, a fairly useful, productive conference. Cool. Well, I mean, uh, from my understanding, it went off well. So congratulations. And it seems like uh, you were the uh, person who was pulling the strings uh, in the background. So that was quite the task that you were uh, in charge of. So that's Yeah, I mean, I think you have to, somebody has to do the 
the work you nobody wants to do so and since uh, you know this was something which was which had to be done uh, it's kind of pretty appalling and i want to reach out through this podcast that we must do something more to you know do uh, more of these conferences and most more of these reflections whenever these anniversaries come in uh, i'm i think that way the the western audience uh, the western researchers are very good at it they even reflect on 5 years 10 years like right now 20 years of euro is being reflected now 20 years doesn't really feature in any of the anniversaries but i think every 5 years or so on and so forth they reflect they get all the researchers around and as a result literature and you know forward looking exercises begin but in india we really you know are not really good at all this uh, ahmedabad university happens to be the only one which organized this uh, conference on 50 years of bank nationalization which in rbi's own words is one of the most important events even more than 91 reforms now if uh, you know rbi's own history writes it at least rbi should have done something about it uh, they should have been more you know events and more reflections on some of these histories and that's how you generate uh literature uh, yeah no absolutely so i'm just thinking does rbi have like a research division do they sponsor research oh yeah Obviously they have they... a fantastic uh, research division uh, they have a lot of researchers uh, but internal to rbi obviously right but do they yes. do they work with universities and do they sponsor external research and those they do they do but uh, you know perhaps a lot more can be done i think yeah and i think it's it's you're right i mean it's more internal than external yeah i mean it just seems to me that if someone i mean if if an ex governor comes out and says look uh, nationalization of banks is more important than the economic reforms that took place in the early 90s then that's like a huge sort of flashing light saying hello we've like completely missed something over here right yeah actually it is not the rbi governor it is it is rbi's history i mean so what rbi does is that every once a while they review their own history and uh, so they have so far four volumes of their history since 1935 okay the fifth yeah. volume is being written so in in their volume uh, which reflected on the nationalization period the, the historians of rbi themselves mentioned so that you know it's it's more important than 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 the 91 reform okay so um walk us through that like what was what was the the ecosystem before 69 and then how how is that transformed and you know the impact that it's still playing out so just sort of walk us through that if you can yeah sure so what what typically goes on is is in the 60s where you know you've got these uh, wars with pakistan and a uh, lot of turmoil uh, nehru passes away uh, lal bahadur shastri comes in passes away in two years so there's a lot of turmoil and then this uh, the war with pakistan and you know resources are drained out 1961 a very important year where congress for the first time loses a lot of elections uh its monopoly is kind of and then they appoint indira gandhi who's not very sure where uh, so right. and before 60s uh, much of the indian industries have been nationalized uh, you know the airline industry the insurance industry and we we started with you know fairly grand grandiose plans about of socialization uh, socialism sorry where we had large industries starting in the government sphere and banking was one of those few in, banking was one of those industries which was so far not nationalized and uh, there were already things in france and so on and so forth where banks were nationalized and there were talks right at the time of independence and banks should be nationalized but somehow we avoided it being nationalized uh, though two sort of entities were nationalized rbi starting in rbi being the first in 49 very few know that rbi started as a shareholder bank and i was then, just going to say that i didn't realize that rbi was uh, a private bank it wasn't right. uh, wow 
and then followed by uh, the State Bank of India, which was then called Imperial Bank of 1955 uh, and given broad targets to reach out. So if you look at typically the Indian financial economy uh, for a long time, uh, there is this whole thinking and a lot of facts available where banking has been available to to the riches and uh, you know it's not really available to the larger rural population. So for a long time, uh, there's been a struggle to penetrate uh, and uh, you know make banking services available to to a larger cohort. Uh, I'll come to 1951. So 1951, there was this major committee which looked at the the rural banking committee, which looked at some of these initiatives, and they said the cooperatives are best placed to provide banking services to the poor, and uh, the commercial banks can you know pretty much do the banking activity which they're doing, lending to the industry and so on and so forth. So from so 51 there was to 60. Thought in 51 that to address, I'm, we're just going to call it the bottom of the pyramid, right? Right. Um, to address the bottom of the pyramid that instead of using these large sort of commercial banks, we, we, right. we need these smaller cooperative. And were cooperative banks, did they exist at that point in time? Or was this something that was created? Cooperative banks have been there for a long time. Uh, they started pretty much in 1904, actually, uh, with India's, India's got this very funny relationship uh, of finance. Uh, money lenders and indigenous bankers have... Right in India for a very long time, much before British came in, much before British started the British banking. And uh, where, so there are all these comments by scholars who point out that, you know, banking has always been in India in different forms. So, right. uh, but unfortunately it was not, it didn't really penetrate. It was always, even indigenous banking was on trade routes and so on and so forth, not really reaching out. So there were these riots in Bombay presidency around the 19th century. Uh, and, uh, as a result, and those riots were basically money lenders, uh, between money lenders and agri- agriculturists, uh, so which were uh, famously called the Deccan riots, uh, and uh, as a result, there were there was this thinking that you know we need to do something to provide finance to the rural uh, and to the agriculturists, and uh, the British then started this cooperative banking model in Germany and so on and so forth, mm-hmm. and uh, even in Madras presidency, there there were these forms of nidhis, and uh, in the coastal areas of Kerala, you always always had chit funds, which were, you know, the so-called indigenous financial intermediaries, which were doing some of these activities at, at a cooperative level, not related right, to banking. Right. So, so I'm going to quickly to... pause you for a second. And uh, sure. just for the people who don't know or don't realize that the current map, the geography of India is, was a little different back then. I mean, you right. mentioned Madras presidency, uh, Bombay presidency. Oh, sure. My great grandfather was actually posted in Aden in World War One, And Aden was, oh, okay. in, was part of Bombay presidency. So we're talking about a very large... Uh, uh, I didn't know Aden was part area. of Bombay presidency. Oh, great. Okay. Aden uh, was, the port of Aden was administered uh, by the British under, quote unquote, the Bombay presidency. So oh, wow. it's, okay. uh, yeah, the, the different times. And then, uh, so you mentioned chit fund. Uh, do you mind right. just quickly just describing what a chit fund is? Because I think people in India might know, but uh, for our uh, international uh, audiences, they may not know. So what I think the international audiences call calls it the rotating uh, savings uh, credit association, ROSCAS, where what happens is that you've got these group of people who pool in funds and uh, there is this person who manages those funds and through lottery system, those funds are given to uh, one person. And as a result, you know, let's say 20 of us give 1000 rupees each, uh, which makes it 20,000. So 20,000 is given through the lottery system allotted to the 20 members. And, uh, and you know, there's this... rotating this sort of habit. it's almost like a community sourced funding. Sure. So it avoids the collateral, it avoids all those other things and gives 
funds to the needy person. So it's been there for a long time. In, sort of like an in, old school uh, crowdsourcing. Right. You can. I mean, that's a great that's a great way to put it, actually. So I interrupted you. So you had chit funds, uh, people in yeah, the Yeah, so sector. what I was saying yeah. is that how what has always uh, interested me is, is how high ideas kind of uh, move over time and some of those ideas keep repeating, right? We just learned how the crowdsourcing of today was nothing but chit funds of yesterday. So some people, uh, so, you know, in that sense, uh, some of those ideas, I mean, what interests me a lot is how ideas confluence and then, you know, they disappear and then they again come together. So again, uh, so the cooperatives typically have been there uh, from 1904. Uh, that's, I mean, the, the British then looked at it. So, so cooperatives have been there from 1904 onwards. And the, the history there has not been very great because cooperatives, the nature of cooperatives is such that, you know, a couple of us form this institution. So it remains very small. So it requires a lot of spreading around and the people have to be truthful to, to running the organization and so on and so forth. So coming back to the 1950s, yeah. So 1950s is where they decide, okay, we've got to really take this country forward and finance is one way to do it. And rural finance is, is, a, is rural and agricultural finance is where problems are. And they realize that let cooperatives do it. And in this committee, they had also mentioned to nationalize uh, the Imperial Bank of India, I mean, convert into a state bank, which then becomes this apex agency apart from the Reserve Bank and channelizes funds to the rural and the agricultural sectors. Uh, there's a lot of uh, focus from the government. So far from, you could, you could say that the British basically started cooperatives, but were not, were, didn't really push it. Uh, after 51, there was a you know, a lot of interest in pushing cooperatives at the center of the Indian financial system and taking away the powers of moneylenders. I mean, yeah. making it from an informal to more formal financing mechanism. And what is also going on is, is this very interesting period of banking in India where you've got a lot of banking failures. Now, India is a typically country where, uh, you know, you've got a lot of these banks coming up in very large numbers and a lot of banks are failing uh, in the process. Uh, there is somehow, they're inadequately capitalized, there are very little reserves. Just after Reserve Bank comes in, you know, there is a big failure in uh, Travancore area, Travancore National Coulon Bank, which prompts the Reserve Bank that, you know, we need a more comprehensive regulation. So far, it was, as Reserve Bank comes in, it's up to the banks whether they want to be, you know, supervised and regulated by bank, by RBI. Right. Now, RBI wanted powers where it could do it on its own without really you know, banks coming forward, RBI should be regulating and supervising the banks. This realization came up in 38, 39, and we were soon you know, engrossed in the Second World War and then the partition and so on and so forth and the independence. So it took, took some time. In 49 is where we have this Comprehensive Banking Regulation Act. Okay. So in 49, we have this Comprehensive Banking Regulation Act. In 1951, we have this committee which looks at you know, providing finances to the rural. And typically, commercial banks are also not in a position because this whole thing was, uh, you know, not very great. The commercial bank picture didn't look great. Uh, significant cleanup was needed before you could give them, you know, larger goals. Okay. So you right. also said that, okay, let cooperatives handle the uh, rural and cooperatives, uh, rural and the agricultural system. And so this is going on. RBI is kind of cleaning up the system in 60s. Again, there's a big bank failure. And again, in Kerala called Palai Central Bank, which again, shakes up the banking system. And then RBI pretty much clamps, clamps down. And uh, from some... I think some 400, 500 banks in the 1960s. By 69, we have some 70 odd banks remaining. So a oh, lot of cleanup, a uh, lot of mergers, acquisition, a lot of mergers, amalgamations, and so on and so forth have happened. And uh, now, you know, we are, you are, we are in a position where, you know, something could be done uh, in the sense that, okay, the whole picture has been consolidated. And uh, now I again come back to 60s. I'm sorry, I'm going through a lot of time periods. 
Not, uh, we are we are following with, uh, the currency spec to the pound. Okay. Uh, so essentially, this is the Bretton Woods system uh, where, uh, you know, after the 1944, where the Cairns and all these guys, right. you know, setting up the Bretton Woods system where only the dollar is pegged against the gold and all the other currencies are pegged against the dollar. So for a long time, uh, India kind of, you know, was basically peg- pegging its currency to the pound. Uh, okay, so we so uh, our currency is pegged to the pound, and right. uh, Mrs. Gandhi. That's has what I remember. I, I'll just yeah. check. I think, but yeah, I mean, our main transactions used to be towards the pound. I'll just check check that and get back to you. So, in fact, since we bring this topic up, one of the first decisions Indira Gandhi does as Prime Minister is to devalue the rupee in 1966. Okay, uh, which which comes up, uh, which again is amidst a lot of furor in the parliament over devaluing the currency and so on and so forth. So and the devaluation is because of like what was the motivation over there? Yeah, so devaluation because of uh, high inflation, uh, you you are basically losing the the internal value of the rupee. So the internal value of the rupee and the external value of the rupee have to be consistent. And uh, in external terms, you're va- overvalued, whereas internally you've lost a lot of you know because of the inflation. So you have to kind of devalue the currency to you know re- make it look, help it being priced properly. Right. And this is being done because are we uh, importing too much, not exporting enough? Like what's, what's yeah, the war on? and so on and so forth. A lot of these problems are, I mean, for a long time till 91, this Forex remains a problem. I mean, every once a while, uh, the Forex reserves come and hit you, uh, you know, because of some oil shocks here and there. And you've got, you've got a very protected economy. So exports are not really welcome and you have very little Forex reserves to buy or Oil, oil, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, a couple of those things. I mean, so, uh, so you have to. It would have been the Indochina War, and then yeah, I'm guessing starting with Indochina War, Nehru's uh, death, then Shastri's death, then the Pakistan War, then the Shast- then Shastri's death, then Indira Gandhi coming in, uh, then '67 losing a lot of elections, Congress losing a lot of elections. So, overall, fairly politically chaotic environment. Right. Well, uh, I mean, '60s the the decade was pretty chaotic globally actually i mean if you think yeah sure so i mean obviously i mean everywhere the global currents obviously matter as well so now uh, the banks have been nationalized um so we have this we have these cooperative banks which are sort of doing their own thing there's a lot of uh, concerns over there primarily because i'm going to call it corruption or mismanagement Mm. is probably a better word right Um, okay and then we have these large sort of state banks. Um, what happens then in the subsequent decades? Um, you know, in the in the late seventies, in the eighties, mm-hmm. and then you know, as the economy opens up in in the in the early nineties, what, what's going on right. with the, these? I'm going to call them parallel threads of the Indian banking. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, so typically, you know, fifties to sixty nine, cooperatives are at the center. Then sixty nine, suddenly banks, commercial banks, come to the center. As Indira Gandhi comes in in 68, there are talks of nationalization. Those talks are there. I mean, that it is a question of uh, most bankers sensing that there's going to be nationalization. And uh, we must also remember that the top 14 banks, uh, most of them, you know, if, if one looks at their branch distribution and so on and so forth, are kind of still very city-based. That was the end of part one for this episode. Join us again for part two, where we discuss events that take us from the political needs of Mrs. Indira Gandhi through onto aspects of the Indian economy under Dr. Manmohan Singh, 
and finally reached the banking crisis that occurred in 2019 under the current Prime Minister, Mr. Narendra Modi. Thank you for listening.